everybody. Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group. To prepare for our Big Book Study, let's get focused by having a three-minute moment of silent meditation, followed by the fog light prayer. Good evening, everyone. I'm a recovered alcoholic, and my name is Rob. And I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Chris. Thanks for joining us tonight. We're going to start the meditation in a minute, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise or that will distract others for the duration of the meeting. The coffee area will be closed for this portion of the meeting so as to minimize distractions. Also, please refrain from distracting others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. For the meditation, some suggestions are to focus on your breath and posture. Breathe in God and breathe out self. Take this time to get reconnected to God and let that craziness of the day drift away. Ask God to help you stay focused on the step study or on the book study. Uh, is everybody ready? Okay, let's bring in the monks. Come on, monks.
Please join me in the fog light prayer. If you don't know it, repeat after me. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. All right, let's have our secretary's report. Uh, please Woo! come on up and... You good? All right, cool. Uh, All right, so in keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group should be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. And um, I've asked my friend Kate to come read the recovered statement. Oh, right here, okay. I'm Kate. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Kate. Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have, we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. That's it. You want to come? And uh, we read that notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. 1940s-style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen felt come to believe and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. These statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. So we also have CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale. And um, we use various forms of electronic transferring, such as Venmo and, and uh, Zelle and things like that. So, and we also have a little square reader. So if you want to come up and you don't have the cash on you and you have a card, it's a great alternative. Um, We meet every Monday promptly at 7.15, and we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the Road to Recovery tune, and we will see you next week. Thank you, Ronnie. From the forward to the first edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, we have Alcoholics Anonymous for more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book and of this group. From There is a Solution, also from the big book, the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. This is an open meeting, and as such, all who have an interest in alcoholism and our program program of recovery are welcome. Because this is an open meeting, you need not identify yourself nor your reason for being here if you do not wish to do so. Your anonymity will be protected. We ask that you protect ours. Can we have a show of hands of people joining us for the first time? Anybody joining us for the first time? Excellent. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. And uh, could I have a show of hands, please, of recovered alcoholics? While this is an open meeting, membership in this group is limited to those who wish to recover from alcoholism and have a desire to stop drinking for good and all. Each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is a potential sponsor of a new member and should clearly recognize the obligations and duties of such a responsibility. Does anybody need a big book? Did anybody sneak in without grabbing one? Raise your hand. We have some loners. All right. Good job, welcoming crew. 
All right. Before we begin our study of the big book, last week we reviewed Tradition 3, I believe. And tonight, let's take a quick review of Tradition 4. Please refer to the unabridged book 562 and the abridged big book 177. Uh, What tradition are we on? Did I get it right? Three. We're on three. Okay. All right. Welcome. Cheers. Tanisha. Tanisha was waiting to see what somebody else had to share. She's like, this is going to be good. Oh, look at your baby. She's so cute. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hi. So cute. All right. Tanisha, you're a recovered alcoholic, sec- uh, traditionist. Hi, Tanisha. Hi. <laughs> Sorry for being absent last week. I was sick, still getting over a little some some. Okay, tradition three. Where are the traditions found in the skinny mini? 177. And in the big book? 562. All right, that's just a reminder where you should be. Tradition three states, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. And in the long version, our membership ought to include all who suffer from alcoholism. Hence, we may refuse none who wish to recover nor ought AA membership ever depend upon money or conformity. Any two of three alcoholics gathered together for sobriety may call themselves an AA group, provided that as a group they have no other affiliation. And so I went, I went to the BCIC, BCIC, Broward County Institution Committee, right? And I picked up this pamphlet along with, you know, an H&R commitment. And this is a part of orientation packet. So I like what it says in here. And so it reads, the third tradition, the only requirement for AA membership is the desire to stop drinking. Isn't every organization entitled to have rules for membership? Why did AA decide to forego this privilege to be inclusive, never exclusive? That's easy. Early members tried it the other way. And it just didn't work. As the fellowship nearing its 10-year mark, the office that served as headquarters asked the groups to list their membership roles and send them in. Bill W. recalled, If all of these edicts had been enforced everywhere at once, it would have been practically impossible for any alcoholic to have ever joined AA. About nine-tenths of our oldest and best members could never have got by. So the rule books went out the window and were replaced by one uncomplicated sentence, Tradition 3, the only requirement for AA membership is the desire to stop drinking. But somebody may ask, isn't this tradition itself a rule? It doesn't state one requirement for membership. Let's read it again and ask another question. Who determines whether or not Newcomers qualify, whether they do want to stop drinking. Obviously, nobody except the newcomer themselves. Everybody else simply has to take their word for it. In fact, they don't even have to say it out loud. And that's fortunate for many of us who arrived at AA with only a half-hearted desire to stay sober. We are alive because the AA road stayed open to us. The problem faced by this tradition isn't just AA history. 
It keeps coming up. For instance, when a group debates whether to exclude alcoholics who have problems other than alcohol or have differing lifestyles, the tradition mentions no such additional requirements, no demand that prospective members must not have a history of drug abuse or a certain lifestyle or an institutional background. All alcoholics are welcome. And with that, I'll leave you with this quote. We aren't a, we aren't a bit afraid you'll harm us, never mind how twisted or violent you may be. And from my experience, you know, that's exactly how AA was for me. Um, at first, you know, I wrote something. Um, like, I, I, I was a drug abuser, like, heavily. And at first, I was like, I can't be an AA because, you know, I did a bunch of other dry goods, you know. And, and I call myself an alcoholic out of respect to the program. You know, if I'm in another meeting, yeah, I'm going to say I'm other things relating to that meeting. But um, I don't come to AA and I'm, you know, other things. I am what I am in this room because that's who I am in this room. And so, and that's respect just, you know, to the fellowship itself, because AA did save my life, and because of AA, I do have a new life today, and I didn't choose AA, AA just chose me, I chose a woman that could take me through the steps, and she just happened to be in AA, but if she was in any other fellowship, then I would have just followed her to those meetings just as well as I did here in AA. So, you know, with that said, um, thank you for accepting me. I remember saying that in my first meeting. I said, thank you for accepting me because I really didn't feel that I fit anywhere else. And <laughs> I was like, this is the last house on the block for me. Plus, I'm court ordered here. So, <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> I am that violent terror that I would think that you would just, you know, um, push away from. But <laughs> I just want to end with this also. Um, we've thrown away all membership rules and regulations that might keep you out. We want you to have the same chance for sobriety that we had. Thank you. Thank you, Tanisha. In order to help us stay focused as we study the big book, to study the big book, we use the big book study guide prepared by Joe and Charlie and Krusty Cliff of the Dallas Primary Purpose Group. And tonight, uh, reading from the podium is going to be Kat. Everybody welcome Kat. All right. Tonight, we're going to begin on page 23, top of page 23, and that's going to be read by Kat. We're going to tee up a little bit. After the page is read, we're going to ask questions from the podium, starting back at the top of page 23. The answers will be one sentence unless otherwise specified, and multi-part questions are simply a one-sentence answer split up by commas, semicolons, hyphens, and other fun bits of punctuation. Basically, in English, what that means is that we're going to read the material once through and then re-dissect the information a second time through the question and answer format. Notice how the language in the questions gives us a new light in which to consider the study material. This is important because hearing the question and rereading the content offers a definite way of comprehending the material covered. After we've completed the page or the paragraph, we open up for comments, questions, and observations based on what was just read. If you have spiritual experiences with this information, you are free to share. However, big book study is not therapy. Should you begin sharing about topics which are more appropriately discussed in a different, i.e. sponsorship setting, please do not be offended when Ryan cuts that conversation short. For that purpose, we have fellowship meetings before and after our study time. 
You can never go wrong by commenting on the page, which brings us to the words of one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. Sobriety, freedom from alcohol through the teaching and practice of the 12 steps is the sole purpose of any Alcoholics Anonymous group. And we are starting on page 23 tonight, but we didn't just jump into page 23 like Michael Jordan, 23, you know, we, we actually started <laughs> how many Fire. weeks ago, like 19, 20 weeks ago, maybe. Yeah. A few weeks. We started a few weeks ago. Something like that. And where do we start? We started on page zero and we had our, our first promises here uh, from the founders, how many thousands of men and women have recovered uh, from alcoholism. And we got into the preface and the forwards and what they offer us is some history, how the fellowship got started, some of the uh, early recovery rates, some or early exposure to the traditions, and basically gives us that snapshot of where we've been and where we've gone uh, with the publication of this book. And then after the preface and the forewords, we made our way through the doctor's opinion. The doctor's opinion describes the disease of alcoholism. It describes that physical allergy that we have if we're real alcoholics. Uh, we actually crave more when we start drinking, and that's what it means to be an alcoholic, is to have the physical allergy. Also, the mental obsession where I don't have a good reason. I have many good reasons for not drinking, but none of them are enough to stop me from picking up that first drink. I get the spiritual malady, and then Silkworth hints at the spiritual solution. And so if we want to know what the doctor's opinion is talking about in a real live case study, we have uh, another chapter. That is uh, chapter one, Bill's story, which is um, Bill Wilson, one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, it, it is his story. And we get to see all of those things that Chris just talked about uh, that the doctor's opinion introduces us to in a real life study, right? With with Bill Wilson and, and examining his life, you know, his big plans and dreams and grandiosity as he sets out, you know, uh, getting out of the armed forces. And then he becomes a stockbroker and has a lot of success. But we get to see that disease progress in Bill uh, to where, um, you know, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It was it was then a necessity in his life and what that looked like, how that played out, uh, where that took his life and uh, what it brought him to do. And then a, an old drinking buddy of his, Ebby Thatcher, who had gotten sober two months earlier in the Oxford group, carries that message to Bill W. and says, hey, I've got a solution to this thing. Uh, I've got religion, right? And, and that kind of scared Bill at first. But, you know, Ebby, Ebby, knowing his friend Bill, said, all right, Bill, you know, if you don't want to subscribe to the Oxford group, uh, Savior, how about you just pick your own higher power and just let's start there. And, you know, that opened up a whole new world for Bill. You know, those, those walls of prejudice fell down and, and he got to, you know, start to accept that spiritual help and, and went through with the Oxford program of action and, and got sober and then saw the only way he was going to stay sober is to carry that message to other alcoholics that needed it. And uh, then he then he finds Dr. Bob and, and the start of Alcoholics Anonymous, which leads us into chapter two. And so far, and there's a solution. There's a solution starts on page 17. It talks about the fellowship of AA and the fact that we've all shared in this common peril. We've all escaped disaster as people who were ex-problem drinkers. But the fact that we have this joyousness and this camaraderie that actually doesn't is not enough to hold us together and to keep us sober. So the fellowship is not the program. The fellowship is excellent, but it's not the solution. And the, and the tremendous fact is that we have this common solution. We have this way out and they're talking about what the way out is. And the way out is this spiritual experience that is produced by the 12 steps and by this encounter with the divine. So with that, we are on page 20. We're going to queue up on page 22. We're going to start the study on page 23. We want to do, uh, start us on the last paragraph on 22 with we know, and then we'll cut you off okay. when it's time to Wait, start. which, I'm confused, which microphone, this one? Yeah, just use that, that one's not on. Okay. Okay, um, hello, is that working? Okay, mm -hmm. you can hear me? Okay, I just want to make sure. 
Um, okay, I'm Kat. I'm a recovering alcoholic. Hey, and we are on page 22 at the bottom. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens, both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of an alcoholic will but abundantly confirm this. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting <laughs> the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. If you ask him why he started on the last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of the man who, having a headache, beats himself <laughs> my favorite part, uh, <laughs> on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they're a baffled lot. There's the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game. But they often suspect they are down for the count. How true this is, few realize. In a vague way, their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal. But everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. The tragic truth is that if the, if the man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. He has lost control. At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. The tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Yeah, that's an important line. Um, <laughs> the fact is that most alcoholics, for reason yet obscure, uh, yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practi practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a 
a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. Am I keep going? Okay. The alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. (laughs) Or perhaps he doesn't think at all. How often have some of us begun to drink in this nonchalant way, and after the third or fourth pounded on the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sakes, how did I even get started again? Only to have have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the sixth drink, or what's the use anyhow? When this sort of thinking is fully established in any individual with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid, and unless locked up, may die or go permanently insane. These stark and ugly facts have been confirmed by legends, legions of alcoholics throughout history. But for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop but cannot. There's a solution. Almost just like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for for its successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others, and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven, and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. The great fact is just this, and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences, which have revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellows, and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered in our into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. Our study now on the top of page 23, first paragraph, these observations. So these observations, that's where we're going to start it. And I'm going to read the questions. I'll let you know if it's more than one sentence from up here. If you ask, okay, if you ask an alcoholic why he drinks, can he give you an honest answer? Sorry, I should have had this lined up. I thought I, I thought. No, I you had it. it. What set the terrible cycle of motion? These observations. All right. These observations be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle of motion. What is the truth? Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. Even with plausible excuses, do they know the answer? If you ask him why he started... On that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. What is the real truth? Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in light of the havoc an alcoholic drinking bout creates. Once they have crossed the line, what is their mental state? They sound like the philosophy of the man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. What is the obsession of every alcoholic? If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. 
Okay, this paragraph is open for comments. Does anybody have anything to share on that paragraph we just read? Yeah, we got a hand over here. I'm going to pass that mic to Bill. Hi, my name is Bill. I'm a grateful recovered alcoholic. Hey, Bill. You know, uh, when I used to go to the Joe and Charlie seminars all the time, they used to chuckle every once in a while through the book. Uh, and when they got to this part, uh, he would always say, before the first drink, we are stone cold sober. Or in other words, stark raving sober. And I don't know how it was for you guys, but uh, I can remember the sensation of, I need a freaking drink. Well, where was that coming from? That wasn't coming from, uh, you know, the allergy. It was coming from something deep within me, a need that I had, that alcohol, only alcohol, or at least in my mind, the only thing that could cure that need was alcohol. I needed a fix. It wasn't a Jones. It wasn't a physical addiction. It was something that I needed. But the source of it was deep within. And that's why I've come to understand the solution has to be from deep within. Thanks. That's all I got. Thanks for sharing. Shall we go on? Next paragraph. We were a paragraph off, so this is going to be lined up now. Does the alcoholic ever tell the truth? And it's once in a while. (laughs) Once in a while, he may tell the truth. What is the truth? And the truth, strange to say, is usually that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Even with plausible excuses, what do they know the answer? Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time. What is the real truth? But in their hearts, they do not know why they do it. Once they have crossed the line, what is their mental state? Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. What is the obsession of every alcoholic? There is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game. Do they normally suspect the truth? But they often suspect they are down for the count. Yeah, so this paragraph's now open for comments, and... We only remember what it does for us, right? Not what it does to us. So I have all these consequences, all these reasons for not drinking. Maybe I have criminal charges. Maybe I'm on probation without a license for DUI. And I decide that, well, I'm going to just go to the liquor store. And then once I've gone, I'm going to decide now that the craving is kicked in, I'm going to drive back and buy more. So I have excuses, right? And the excuses are, are often, actually always pretty much pale in comparison to the havoc that my drinking always creates, as the book's talking about here. Does anybody else have experience with this stuff? Yeah, we got a hand here. I'm Ronnie, I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Ronnie. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, if going back to the doctor's opinion when it says uh, the alcoholic cannot differentiate uh, the truth from the false, you know, and it's like uh, once in a while he may tell the truth, you know, and I know in my experience if I, if I let myself go without any, um, you know, progress on my spiritual condition that, I inevitably get to a point where I can't differentiate the truth. And the truth, you know, sort of like Bill was saying, it's stark raving sober, you know. Like, I get to a point where I start off this thing with, you know, it, it's, it's the, the sane idea is to stay sober. And then I end this thing with the insane, the insane idea is to stay sober. You know, like, I can't continue sobriety anymore. That becomes the sane idea that I need to drink. 
you know, and they take a they take a flip flop, and um, and then I start to believe that, you know. And so once this malady has a real hold, you know, then I'm I'm a baffled lot, you know. And that's once my emotional barometer reaches all the way to the ceiling, you can't tell me anything. That's what I'm doing. Um, there's the obsession that somehow someday they will beat the game, you know. And 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 I don't think they were referring to this, but <clears throat> I know in in my experience, you know, I, I look at that as in I'll beat the game sober, like I don't need to follow twelve steps. I start to make the truth subjective, <clears throat> you know, instead of an absolute truth that this book talks about where it's like there's no gray area. It's like you do this and this, you'll get that. Um, you know, I start thinking about it as, well, if I do this and part of that, I'm, I, I'll probably get all of that, you know. And, and that has a lot to do with that um, not being able to differentiate the truth from the false. So it's like I need to walk a straight line. Um, but the problem is I, I find myself coloring outside the lines when I don't have, you know, when nobody's looking, you know. So, um you know, I, I mean, I love the step one talk in this book, and uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks for sharing. All right, we got a hand up here. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Jessica. So this is to me like a little first step-ish, and like I'm trying to figure out if I'm really an alcoholic, and like, you know, I tried to test this theory, and there's the obsession that somehow someday I'll beat the game, like I'm sitting on a mountain smoking pot at like 80 and I can have a couple drinks like you know those obsessions <laughs> like yeah someday you know like I'll be on a boat around the water no you know can't do what I need to you know but you know I already know that I'm down for the count because I've tried all those different ways to control my drinking or using and it just didn't work and so it says here that like in the and the next one, it's like, you know, you kind of get hopeful that maybe you can, but then you just realize, no, it's not going to work. But, like, on in more about alcoholism, like, with my relapse, like, it was right at where there's this curious mental phenomenon that parallel with the sound reasoning that inexevitably ran some insane old tr- trivial excuse for taking the first drink. So my sound reasoning just fails to hold me in check. Like, yeah, I could go have a drink. I'm going to be fine. Like, and my sound reason is like, yeah, you're so full of it. And like the insane idea wins out. And it always does when uh, my allergy kicks in next day. I, you know, I ask myself in all earnest of sincerity and how it had happened. And I can't tell you why it happened. I just, we wouldn't have all these treatment centers in these rooms if we knew, mm. really. Thanks for letting me share. Thanks, Thanks for sharing. For yeah, we, we drink on that lie, right? And I love how it highlights step one uh, here. It's, I'm powerless over alcohol. I'm powerless over whether or not I pick up that first drink. That's what it means to be powerless over alcohol. Uh, hi, it's Bill again. Hey, Bill. Hey, Bill. Um, we're talking about obsession here, so we should probably get ourselves a definition of obsession, okay? And the, the, the definition that has worked for me is obsession is an idea which pushes out all thoughts to the contrary. An obsession is an idea so strong it will make me believe a lie that I can drink safely. 
But here's a proposition for you about obsession. And, and this really goes to the, the point that we're talking about more than alcohol here. Alcohol was not my problem. Alcohol was my solution. It's what it was my go-to. But if I'm honest with you guys, I obsessed on a lot of things. Still do. Whether it's cars or clothes or a TV show or, you know, a... a Relationships? Anybody got any obsessive relationships in their history, in their past? I'm sure I'm alone there. <laughs> my, my point is, is that the obsession, as I hinted at before, and as you mentioned as well, is from this deep disconnection with a God of my understanding, with a higher power. I was separated from spirit. And the, the most destructive obviously destructive obsession that I had was with alcohol. But trust me, I've had some obsessive experiences, both in sobriety and prior to, that are maybe just as destructive as alcohol. An obsession with speed. And I'm not talking about the drug. I'm talking about driving fast and crazy and being cool. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about in arguments that I had to be right. And so if we get sober, meaning that we're no longer addicted to alcohol or drugs, uh, is that enough? Because we still have to, I still have to deal with the obsessive thinking and that disconnection that occurs, the obsession that occurs when I'm disconnected. So alcohol is a mirror for us for the rest of our lives and what it is we need to do to be a whole person. So obsession is a thought that pushes all thoughts to the contrary out. Obsession is a, an idea that will allow me to believe a lie. You're wrong. I'm right. Damn it. Thanks for sharing. You know, Bill, I love what, I love what you said about uh, obsession and, and is sobriety enough. And on page 82, we actually answer that question, right? On page 82, it says, we feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough, right? So we got some work to do. We got, we got a spiritual program of action ahead of us. So anybody else before we move on with the Q&A? Okay. Do most folks realize this? Right, how true this is. Do most folks realize this? How true this is. Few realize in a vague way their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal, but everyone, everybody hopeful awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from the, uh, what's that say? Lethargy. Lethargy and assert his power of will. And the question for that was, what do family members and friends hope? So that was answered. Anything on that paragraph? I've never met a group of people with more willpower than alcoholics. But the part that we, that we read up there twice is that we lost the power of choice and drink, which we haven't gotten to yet. But like, to Bill's point, too, like our power of will and sobriety, you might call it obsession. I've never seen so many people work out so much in early sobriety. I did it, too. Right? I'm just like trying to replace one with the other, right? I got a God-sized hole that I'm trying to fill with anything that'll take it, whether it's the relationship, the car, you know, 
the gym, whatever it is. You know, I either need a lot of liquor or I need a lot of God. But all that other stuff is great and healthy at times. But if I'm using that, you know, to try to fill that hole, then, uh, yeah, just not drinking isn't enough because I can get just as sick doing that other stuff if I don't have that spiritual solution. Mm. But we got a lot of willpower in this room. So if willpower would fix it, you know, we, we wouldn't need Alcoholics Anonymous. Like these are some of the most willful people in the world. Stubborn, some might say, but... Yeah, we, we got a step series going on right now where he's talking about step six, and he says, you know, we can't wish these away any more than we can wish away alcohol, all these defects of character. All right, all right so should we continue? Q&A, what is the tragic truth? What is the tragic truth? The tragic truth is that if a man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. What has the alcoholic lost? He has lost control what happens at a certain <laughs> what happens at a certain point in the alcoholic's drinking career at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail what is the tragic situation this tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected yeah. this paragraph's now open for comment Anybody have anything to share on this? All right, this is the fact page, so get ready. What is it that the alcoholic has lost? The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. What happens to our willpower? Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. How long can we rely on our minds to keep fresh the misery of our last drunk? We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month. As the result of this phenomenon, what are we without? We are without defense against the first drink. All right, we got a hand in the back. And yeah, this is italics, so you know what that means. It's, I, I recovered alcoholic Mike Chase. Hey, Mike Chase. You know, there they go again. If a real alcoholic, you know, they're trying to like set us aside from the problem heavy hard drinkers because 30 days in a rehab with some darn good therapy, I almost threw up a little, um, <laughs> vision boards and, uh, you know, equine therapy and uh oh fun days you know and then field trips and uh that for them can take the psychological behavioral emotional obsession away for a lot of people you know pavlov's dog right 28 days change the behavior in a very strict fashion the dog doesn't behave like that but for an alcoholic what we have is a physical chemical reaction I'm alcoholic first and foremost because I have a chemical reaction with alcohol in the way it's produced. It causes me to trigger something in my brain that despite what I want, I can't stop drinking. Once I start drinking, all I do is crave more. And that's an electrical rewiring of the whole brain system. It's a chemical reaction. So there's got to be some damage it causes to the brain. So even I don't have the booze in me, the brain's still going, where the hell's that shit? Get me some more, get me some more, get some more. It's continually looking for that. You know, it's, so it says here, I like to read this a little differently because I'm a recovered alcoholic now. I, I can, okay, the fact is that most 
Untreated alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice and drink. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Through God, through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I can choose not to drink today with God's help. But an untreated alcoholic doesn't have that. The alcoholic's so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. They are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory, the suffering, humiliation of a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. Our body, our brain is screaming to get me that. It knows that it's going to satisfy that craving. It's going to get the craving going. It's not so, it wasn't for me an emotional thing or a psychological thing. I just had to wake up in the middle of the night and, you know, take that scotch that has cigarette butts in it. Throw the cigarette butts out and down it down, you know. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I come to on a Tuesday, show up to work a little bit later on the day. By 12 o'clock, I've already pre-planned that I'm going to score a little bit tonight, but I'm only going to do a little two, what is that, two, two knob creaks, a couple of bumps in the bathroom, some flame and yarn. I'll be home by 9.30. My brain would not allow me to think <laughs> the damaging through. The human mind is designed so we don't do things that intentionally are going to damage us. You didn't have to tell a caveman not to jump off a 400-foot cliff to get the little bunny. They just sort of sense this stuff. Just like my body knows that if I put booze in it, I'm going to go on a two- or three-day run. My boss is going to threaten me. My roommate's going to call my parents. Mom's going to freak out. My sponsor's going to freak out. My grand sponsor's going to freak out. But what if they don't catch me? I'll just have two. You know, for me, every time I went out and drank, the great experiment for me was not to see if I could control the drinking. Well, my experiment was not to get caught. Because if I could drink and not get caught, it wasn't a problem. But this brain would always keep telling me, you're going to do fine tonight, even though the history said it's not. So everything we've read up to this point, previous to this point, was the chemical reaction of the alcohol once we drink it. This is still a chemical reaction. Our brain has craving it, even though it's not actually physically craving. It's so sneaky, this alcoholism. It sucks. Thanks. Mm, Thanks for sharing. Yeah, so when I first came to AA, I had a bunch of well-meaning people, you know, that told me to keep coming back. They said, put the plug in the jug and just go to meetings. Just don't drink and go to meetings, right? I'm like, thank God I had some people, like, who would work these steps and that were real alcoholics that said, no, let's get you a spiritual solution and get you in the book, right? Right. Because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, if I could just not drink, why do I need AA? I'm Ryan, an alcoholic. Hey, Ryan. Hey, um, I love this paragraph. And it, it explains so much for me. I, you know, I couldn't remember the humiliation of even a day ago. Um, you know, and I don't really think that I had too much premeditation into what I was doing. All I could remember when I was using or when I was drinking was just that feeling of like, like as soon, like as soon as I got what it was that I was, that I wanted, just that satisfaction I got. So all I, all I remembered about any of it when I was making the decision to do it was what it did for me, you know, but I, it, like, the thought of what it was going to do to me or the consequences of my actions never even crossed my mind, you know, the thought, like, I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to get kicked out of my house, I'm going to, like, I'm not, not going to have anywhere to live, I'm going to, like, all of those decisions, all of those consequences from my actions, just, they, they weren't even a thought for me. All I remembered was what the alcohol and what the drugs were going to do for me, um, so it's it's pretty hard to have willpower in a situation when you are delusional to all of the facts. You know, how can you make a decision about something when you're delusional about the situation in the first place? 
Um, so that's all I've got. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. Here's what scares the bejesus out of me, okay? In this paragraph, by the way, when Joe and Charlie would get together, Charlie would always say, beware the squiggly writing. So I, I had that whole paragraph uh, highlighted, but the, the two words that I have underlined are sufficient force. And here's what scares the bejesus out of me, is when, when I obsess on something, it's not like I don't remember the consequences. I mean, if I took a particular action and you drove a spike through my foot, okay, <laughs> I would remember that if I take that action, there's a chance you're going to drive a spike through my foot. But my mind, slowly by slowly, convinces me there's some way that I can do that action and avoid the consequences of the spike in my foot. And it doesn't, it's not like I forget. I mean, sometimes, yeah, I just screw it, okay? But most of the time, when I do things like that guy jumping off the 400-foot cliff to get the bunny, okay, convince myself that somehow if I just bounce off of this rock or bounce off of that rock, or if I land on the bunny a certain way, you know, I'm not going to break all the bones in my body. And that allows me, that gives me permission to go ahead and take the action that I know from past experience is going to crush me. And that's, what's, that's what scares the hell out of me, is that my obsession fools me. Little by little. It's not like a lightning bolt hits me. It's like this slow, churning, warm stream that just comes and allows me to convince myself that this time it won't happen. This time I'll get away with it. This time I can get the benefit without the consequence. And that's what's really scary because I make a choice to drink. I make a choice to take that action. I don't, I'm, I'm not unable to make the choice. I'm unable to make an intelligent choice. I'm unable to make a choice based on reason and experience. But when I pick up that drink, the bartender didn't shove it in my hand. He didn't hold my head back and pour it down my throat. I said, over here, fill it up. So we have a choice, but we don't have control. We don't have possession of our mind. We don't have possession of our thoughts. And that's what scares the hell out of me. I never tripped and fell into a bottle of alcohol. I chose to pick it up and drink it. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. We got a comment here. It says, if we are on our own without defense against taking the first drink, then what must be our destiny? And the answer is, without the aid of a power greater than ourselves, step two, we will die or go permanently insane. And that kind of foreshadows what it says at the bottom of the page, that we're beyond human aid and unless locked up, we might die or go permanently insane. So, yeah, this is a scary thing, right? Sounds like a real bummer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the more hopeless he feels, the better, it's going to say, in working with others. So hopelessness is not the worst thing. Right, we got to really get step one sometimes, but but there is hope. There will be hope. Yeah, we got a got a hand here. I'm Ronnie. I'm an alcoholic. Ronnie. <clears throat> I was talking with a friend like a few months ago, and we were talking about like, 
you know, and he said something funny. He was like, man, these are the first step promises, you know? And like, I, I mean, but it's so, it's absolutely true, you know? Like, and, and you can receive the first step promises. Like it's a requirement that you don't do any work to, re- to receive them, you know, that I will drink again. And, um, it, it, and, you know, I, I, I think a lot about step one and the, and the fact that like, you know, there's no choice in one outcome, right? So, I mean, if I just don't do anything and sit around, like, I will drink again, you know? And, and like, it, it requires no effort on my part, you know? Like, it's just, like, alcoholic autopilot. Um, you know, I think some of the things with this, um, you know, like Bill was saying, with sufficient force, you know, I, I do remember. I do know. I do understand. And, and, and my mind says, but, but who cares, you know? And then when I end up in a detox or a treatment or a jail cell and my eyes are filled with tears, that's when I start caring again. You know, that, that's when it comes back to me. You know, it's just, I just have this complete lack of um, ability to keep the truth, you know? And it's like, you know, we're, I'm fast-forwarding a little bit, but, on, you know, the, we agnostics, it says to be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis, you know? And, and it's like, I, I look at those two options as like, well, do you want to be shot to death or stabbed to death? And I'm like, man, neither of these, neither of these things sound good at all, you know. I, I re- they, they both sound terrible, and I don't want to be involved in either of them. And, um, you know, and it's not until just absolute brutality, um, self-imposed brutality, that, that I come to, all right, I'll, I'll, do the, I'll, do the, I'll do the spiritual thing. I'll do it. You know, I'll do it. You know, begrudgingly, I'll do it, you know, um, which, is, which is, that in itself is insane. But, um, yeah, I mean, I... I you know, step one is like my favorite portion of the book. Um, thanks. Thanks for sharing. I'm fairly certain that's only a hard choice for an alcoholic. Right? Ask a normal person, like, you know, doomed to an alcoholic death or live life on a spiritual basis. Not a hard decision, right? For us, it's like, what kind of alcoholic death are we talking about? You know, like, is there going to be more parties before the death? More football games? A couple I mean, long and slow, or is it going to be quick? You know, that spiritual thing sounds lame. Yeah. All right. So anything else on the untreated fact paragraph in italics? Okay. We're back to Q&A. With no more than a glass of beer, what does not enter our mind? The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If there is a slight suspicion, what does the mind do? If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted by the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. What analogy do they give us here regarding the loss of power of choice? There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. Right. So now this page is open for comments. Anybody, anybody have anything on this? Yeah, there's a, there's a place later where it says in, in into action where we recoil. If we're tempted with a drink, we recoil as from a hot flame. And that's on the other side of this spiritual experience, right? But right here, we don't actually have that defense. I can burn myself a thousand times and I'll say, well, it's not going to burn me this time and here's how, right? So anything else on this? Okay. I think, are we about ready to wrap it up? I just got the, the sign there. Sure. Okay. All right. All right. Let's do it. And so, thank you to our reader. Yes, thank you, Kat.
This is from A Vision for You, page 164. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but you obviously cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and for countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. It is the practice of the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group for group members' sponsors to introduce their new sponsees by presenting them with a sponsorship medallion. We have any members of AA that want to introduce a sponsee? Yeah. Okay, so I want to introduce Jill. Um, I've worked with her a couple times um, going through the book, and Jill is a really motivated, strong person, and I have all the hope in the world for you and faith in you, so come on up. She's savage. Is anybody celebrating a year or more of continuous sobriety that would like to celebrate with us? All right, come back next week. Is there anyone that is in need of a big book sponsor? You can raise your hands. We'll attack you like a pack of hungry wolves. No? Uh, if you're too shy, just grab a group member, somebody that had their hand up as a recovered alcoholic. We'd, we'd love to show you how we did this here thing. Could all home group members please raise your hands? Great. We'll see you right afterward to help tear down. Uh, and if you would like to become a member of this group, please join us after the meeting to fill out a membership card. Thank you for joining us tonight. We hope to see you next week. Thursday evening is our Alcoholics and God Step Series workshop starting at 715 downstairs in the Fellowship Hall. Uh, Doc is in the middle of his 12-week session and uh, spitting some fire. All right. And if you could, please wait until you're 75 feet from the doors to vape or smoke. All right, we're going to close now seated with the Lord's Prayer. Who's your daddy? Our Father. No.
shining through But when you cry on the rain So stop your sighing baby And be happy again Yes and keep on smiling Keep on smiling baby And I hope
shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, shine, shine. Let it shine. Out in the dark. Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go.
the lake Count my blessings when I go to sleep at night And I dream now Yeah, I dream now And everything's alright <laughs> Oh, man Going on 10 years old, that song is God bless I love you, Mike Chase Bye
tape. Got one man that just won't say. 